Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. It's June 27, 2019, the first Democratic presidential debate in Miami. Kamala Harris is talking about racism in America. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. She's about to unload on Joe Biden. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Yes, it was a well-rehearsed line. Within hours, the Harris campaign was selling T-shirts that said, that little girl was me. But it still jolted the political establishment to see Harris level the frontrunner like that. It also came from the heart of who Kamala Harris is. Her upbringing in Berkeley and her education at the historically Black Howard University shaped her. It shaped her activism. It shaped her ability to transcend racial boundaries. It shaped her progressive outlook. It shaped her racial identity. It shaped her sense of self. But how did someone who grew up in one of America's progressive bastions decide to become a prosecutor? Or as she puts it, the top cop. Yes or no? Daughter of Oakland, California. Sir, I'm I'm asking a question. I say we fight. And that little girl was me. I'm Joe Garofoli. And I'm Tal Copen. And this is Chronicled. Who is Kamala Harris? From the San Francisco Chronicle. Episode 3. That little girl was me. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gear. Berkeley's famous campus activism was born in October of 1964 with the free speech movement, a protest against campus rules that climaxed with Mario Savio's Bodies Upon the Gears speech. Also born in October 1964, Kamala Harris, a few miles away at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland. But the city wasn't a hotbed of activism quite yet. Was it, Joe? No. The roiling Berkeley, the city known for tear gas and running battles between hippies and National Guard troops, that Berkeley was in its infancy, too. In fact, it had been a Republican city for a long time. It only had started to have a Democratic mayor uh, in the early 70s. That's Scott Saul. He's a professor at UC Berkeley who led a team that created a digital history project that traced the evolution of the city called the Berkeley Revolution. Berkeley as a city was kind of that liberal Republican kind of city, that kind of Republican that doesn't exist anymore. It also had, of course, pockets of radicalism. Uh, The campus, uh, which had been formerly somewhat quiescent in the 50s, was starting to, you know, have these these new surges of activism that were tied to the civil rights movement. Harris's parents were part of that surge. Donald Harris was born in Jamaica. He'd come to Berkeley to study economics. Shamala Gopalan was from southern India. She graduated from the University of Delhi at 19 
and was now pursuing a graduate degree in nutrition and endocrinology on her way to becoming a breast cancer researcher. After Shamala got her degree, she was expected to return home to India, where she likely would have had an arranged marriage, just like her parents had done. But instead, she fell in love. She and Donald had met at a civil rights demonstration. Harris was born shortly after her powerhouse mother had finished her Ph.D. program at the age of 25. Her parents took her to her first civil rights demonstrations while she was still in her baby stroller. In the streets of Oakland and Berkeley, I got a stroller's eye view of people getting into what the great John Lewis called good trouble. Donald and Shamala might have been in sync on social justice issues, but their marriage didn't last. They divorced when Kamala was seven and her sister Maya was five. Harris's father took a teaching job at the University of Wisconsin, later returned to the Bay Area to teach at Stanford. He saw his daughters during the summers in Palo Alto, but he wasn't involved in much of their daily lives. It was up to Shamala to raise the two girls on her own. As she often does in speeches, Kamala Harris talked about her mother at the Democratic National Convention in August. Like so many mothers, she worked around the clock to make it work, packing lunches before we woke up and paying bills after we went to bed, helping us with homework at the kitchen table and shuttling us to church for choir practice. She made it look easy, though it never was. My mother instilled in my sister Maya and me the values that would chart the course of our lives. She raised us to be proud, strong black women. And she raised us to know and be proud of our Indian heritage. Shamla and her two daughters moved to a yellow duplex on Bancroft Way in the flatlands of West Berkeley near the Bay. In those days, black families couldn't live in the hills to the east near the university. There was only certain places that black people could move into. That's Stephanie Jenkins. She's a black woman who grew up in Berkeley at the same time as Kamala Harris. Jenkins' family moved to nearby Richmond during World War II, part of the migration of African Americans who came to work in the shipyards. Her family later moved to Berkeley, just as many white families were moving to the suburbs. But they found their options there were limited. So there was literally a red line on a map that says that black people can move here, and above this line, it was whites only. That line, the de facto black-white dividing line, was Grove Street, which is now Martin Luther King Jr. Way. Harrison Jenkins didn't know each other, but were both part of the first generation of young black students in Berkeley to be bused from their neighborhood to more affluent, largely white schools in the Berkeley Hills. Both enjoyed their schools, but there were still tensions. Just like Harris recalled a white girl not being allowed to play with her, Jenkins remembered a similar thing happening with a young white girl at her school. But as much as she says that experience was a tough learning moment, much as Harris said in her book, Jenkins also says the experience of being bust shaped her in a positive way as an adult. You get mixed. You, you, you form bonds. You have your cohort. So you know the people who are smart in class. And you realize that it's not just white people who are smart in class, that black people are smart too. You know, um, you, you get to see them eating across from you, you know, making jokes and laughing. You know, you just... You forget what your parents told you or what you saw on TV or all the commercials that you saw or even the cartoons that you saw because this person becomes your friend. Shamala raised her daughters to be proud of their blackness. They attended a family friend's daycare where posters of Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and Frederick Douglass hung on the walls. The girls sang in the choir at Oakland's 23rd Avenue Church of God, 
a black church that emphasizes the need to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. She frequently played Aretha Franklin's version of the Nina Simone song, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. We must begin to tell our young, the lyrics went, there's a world waiting for you. This is a quest that's just begun. The girl spent every Thursday at Rainbow Sign, a black cultural center in Berkeley where 10 members of its board of directors were black professional women. Rainbow Sign was a black cultural arts club. That is Odette Pollard. Her parents started Rainbow Sign. And it had a concert hall, theater, art gallery, restaurant, meeting rooms. And so there were performances of all kinds, dance, poetry, reading, um, concerts, all kinds of performances, and you, know, you could come in and eat, you can um, have meetings here, you can have classrooms. So it was really a um, an organization geared to help the arts and politics, of course, um, and political programs move forward. Rainbow Sign was on Grove Street, now Martin Luther King Jr. Way, the de facto black-white dividing line in Berkeley. The name Rainbow Sign refers to a line from the spiritual, Mary, Don't You Weep. In some versions of that song, one line says, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. James Baldwin used that as the title of his book, The Fire Next Time. Baldwin was a frequent speaker at Rainbow Sign, and Harris got to see him and many other Black intellectuals, artists, and activists there. Shirley Chisholm, Alice Walker, Maya Angelou. Here's Harris reading from her autobiography, The Truths We Hold. I loved the electric atmosphere at Rainbow Sign, the laughter, the food, the energy. I loved the powerful orations from the stage and the witty, sometimes unruly, audience banter. It was where I learned that artistic expression, ambition, and intelligence were cool. I want to bring in Otis Taylor Jr. here. He lives in Oakland, and he's the Chronicle's East Bay columnist. He made the short trip to my house, also in Oakland, and we talked about what Oakland and Berkeley were like when Kamala Harris was a kid. I asked him about the rainbow sign. It was... I want to say one of the cultural centers in the country. I mean, we're talking about eminent voices like Nina Simone or James Baldwin just stopping by, um, participating. It was a place where you could eat. It's a place where you could see a jazz concert. It was really this place where um, you could revel in, you could celebrate and you could um, really educate yourself in, in your blackness. And also, you could gain an understanding of what it meant to be black in America there. So what was that for, for a little kid going there? You know, she's 10, 12 years old going there at the time, even younger than that. How does that shape a, a young person? Well, I think it it would shape you in, in, in this exposure to all this majestic um, art, but all also this this way of thinking about yourself because you understand growing up in america um even still to this day you're you're 
your blackness is scrutinized and often characterized as something to fear. And there you can go there and your blackness is loved. It's it's cherished. It is nurtured. And I, I imagine for someone growing up, I mean, how it is for me now, you know, learning about it, um, it's it's very powerful. But I, I imagine growing up and being around that center, it probably was pretty prophetic and, and it probably you know, made it made a, an impact in, in her life. So when most Americans, when they hear about Berkeley, they think about, you know, hippies and radicals and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Where, what was Berkeley in the seventies? What do you need to know about it? If you, if you, if you weren't there? Well, um, it's not the way it was now, but Berkeley, particularly South Berkeley had a vibrant black population. Um, I would liken it to West Oakland before they built the freeway. It was a place where you had black owned businesses. You had a, a black doctor, a black pharmacist. You had your black schools. It was, uh, um, you, many ways you didn't have to leave the neighborhood to get anything you wanted. Now, as you know, Berkeley doesn't look like that, particularly South Berkeley. Many of the black families have moved out. Variety causes gentrification being one. Rainbow Sign was also a political hub. Berkeley's first black mayor, Warren Widener, was a frequent guest. And on Thursday night, when the Harris girls were there, was also the regular meeting night of a group called Black Women Organized for Political Action, or BWAPA. Historian Scott Saul. BWAPA was a group of kind of hard-charging activist women who um, were trying to, you know, were focused on putting more Blacks in places of political power and having really honest conversations about what it would take uh, to to make that happen. So their, their idea was that, you know, Black women had been very involved in the sphere of education. They had been very involved in the church, religion, Let's bring that kind of energy from education and religion and let's bring it into politics. And it was huge. It had a huge effect. Saul says WAPA were not as radical as the Black Panthers, who were headquartered in nearby Oakland. They didn't believe in ideological purity tests in the candidates they supported. Instead, they supported candidates they thought could win. They did not tend to endorse the most radical candidates or the most radical or revolutionary reforms. And I think that we see something like this in, in Kamala Harris, who's always trying to walk uh, this or, you know, to engage in a kind of balancing act where, you know, h- how can she actually win while being a black female candidate and trying to um, to improve the lives within the black community? You know, a lot of times when people think about Berkeley, they think about that's a revolutionary place. And, you know, people like Nina Simone were revolutionary artists. But within Rainbow Sign, uh, the kind of political orientation tended to be more on the liberal side of the Black power spectrum. And I I think we can see that as being the the strain of political action that um, predicts some of the arc of Kamala Harris's career as well. One of the candidates that WAPA later helped was Oakland Representative Barbara Lee, who spent a lot of time at Rainbow Sign when she was a college student. That's where I met Nina Simone, young, gifted, and Black, at the Rainbow Sign. And so it was the center of Black cultural activities, uh, music, art, 
Uh, and actually, um, as a community worker with the Black Panther Party, when Huey Newton wrote his book, and I was chair of the Black Student Union, I had a book signing for Huey Newton at the Rainbow Sign. So for Kamala to be there as a child, uh, I'm sure influenced her awareness as an African-American, uh, as an Indian-American woman, a biracial woman, and being around such wonderful uh, African-American uh, leaders and African-American uh, residents in Berkeley and Oakland who came all the time. You could run into anyone at the Rainbow Sign. Let's go back to my conversation with Otis Taylor Jr. about the difference between the Oakland of the Black Panthers and the Berkeley of Boapa. Because there's something interesting about the way Kamala Harris talks about where she's from and I asked Otis about it. She often refers to herself as she as she did, you know, the Democratic National Convention as being from Oakland. But she she really grew up in Berkeley. Why does she do that? Is that a, a political calculus or what's that all about? Yes, you're you're spot on there, Joe. In the minds of, I guess, uh, a national audience, Berkeley is uh, remembered for um, the student protests, you know, protesting Vietnam. Uh, it's a place where Jane Fonda hung out. Tom Hayden. It wasn't Oakland where the Black Panthers were formed, where they uh, made their mark historically patrolling uh, Oakland as a defense mechanism with guns um, to protect against police brutality. Oakland has this kind of cultural cachet that when you mention Oakland, you 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 know you're talking about um, not only arts and and diversity, but you're talking about this um, like this gumshoe uh, approach to living, where it could be hard, but it's also beautiful. Um, there's uh, Oakland to me, um, you know, parts of Oakland were known as you know the Harlem of the West. So it is, um, in, in the minds of national consciousness, a place where blackness thrived, but it also represents today a place where blackness is trying to hang on to what it once had. But as much as Kamala Harris talks about the East Bay as the place where she grew up, it wouldn't be home for much longer. On the next Chronicle, the Harris family leaves Berkeley and leaves the United States. The producer of Chronicled is King Kaufman. Artwork and design by Tam Duong, Danielle Mollette-Parks, and Yoli Martinez. Thanks to Tim O'Rourke, Erica Carlos, and Karen Creighton. Audio excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from The Truths We Hold by Kamala Harris, read by the author. Thank you to the Atlanta Music Project for letting us use the audio of the youth choir singing To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. Visit atlantamusicproject.org to learn more or donate. Chronicled as a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. For full access, visit sfchronicle.com slash pod. <laughs> <laughs>